God, we come today because our Savior loves and our Savior lives. And we come here to, to, to praise Him, to worship Him. And God, I'm humbled that You would use me to open up Your Word with this many people and proclaim Your truth. I pray that You would use my tongue and my lips for Your glory and for Your honor to speak the truth and then that your name, when we leave here today, that we would be deeper in love with you, have a fuller sense of awe of who Jesus is in each of our lives, that his name would be lifted up. And it's all, it's all from him and through him and to him that we pray. Amen. So we've been walking through this story, and last week we got into the New Testament, we got here with Jesus, uh, and we're going to be talking about his birth today. Um, But I wanted to know, has anybody in here ever been burned before? Like someone made a promise to you and then totally broke it. Does that happen to you? Am I the only one? Because it's it's happened to me, and, and I don't want to talk about it. Just kidding. Of course I want to talk about it, right? I always talk about it. This is like basically free therapy for me. I appreciate that. When I was about uh, 12, I mean, probably actually closer to 14 years old, my parents had told me they were going to take me to a Seattle Sonics game. The Sonics are now in Oklahoma City. Um, on the way back home from a family vacation, um, seeing our family in the Midwest, we were going to catch that on a layover in Seattle on the way home. It was my birthday. I was the largest um, Seattle Sonics fan on the planet. I'd never had a chance to go see the Sonics play. I'd never even been to a live sporting event at all. And so I was so excited to finally be able to go see them. I'm from Alaska, so you rarely ever get these kind of chances, right? The Oilers are not scratching that itch for me. I'm sorry. And so I wanted to go, and on the way home, our flight gets delayed, and by the time we get into Seattle, the game was over. And you see that, I know, you see this picture of us outside the arena? It's because there was never a picture of us taken inside the arena. And there's this pathetic scene where this 14-year-old Alaskan is digging through the garbage in hopes he can find some sonic souvenirs to take home to say, at least I got close. I got somebody else's used cup. Uh, Wanting to know those those thunder sticks to bang together? I found one of them, so I couldn't even, like, do... And here is the point. My, my, this is not my parents' fault, right? They had promised this. They had done everything in their power to fulfill this promise. But there was something outside of their control that made them not be able to deliver on what they had promised to me. And there are times in our lives that we either cannot or do not fulfill promises we make to other people. And what we want to do this morning is recalibrate our hearts and be pointed back to the one and only one in the universe that always, always keeps his promises. And that's our God. That's our God. And we're going to see this morning, as we look at this beautiful story of the birth of Christ, is we're going to see God being true to his promises. And the reason our hearts need to hear this is because we live in a world full of promise breakers, including ourselves. And therefore, our hearts are prone to wander and distrust the things that he's told us are true in his word. So we want to see in this story and be reminded of the faithfulness of our God. But before we do that, everybody's favorite part. All right, we said last week we got to Jesus. So we said, Jesus, this is our sign language for Jesus, just a nail in the hand. Um, and so let's see if we can remember from the top. You guys ready? We got God, creation, fall, promise, Flood, tower, 
patriarchs, exodus, law, conquest, judges, kingdom, divided, exile, return, silence, and Jesus. Very good. If you're new here, please come back next week. Um, <laughs> last week we said that, remember there was that time between the Testaments called the, the 400 years of silence, where we had no word from a prophet, no word from God. But at the end of those 400 years of silence, the silence is broken by a baby crying in the arms of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And this was John the Baptist. And he was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. Remember, we said he is the one, like on the golf course, yelling, For! He says, turn from your sins. He was, he was baptizing people unto repentance, which was basically to say, admit that you're sinners, turn from that sin, and, and look, behold, your Savior is coming. And we said that he was not the light, but he was a witness to the light. And that a light does its job, a, a, the glass of the light bulb does its job best when it is clearest. And, and that we are called to show the world Jesus in us. And as we say the words of John, he must increase and I must decrease. That it's more of Jesus and less of me. That's the Christian life in a nutshell. That's what we're called to. And this week, we're going to see the, the light, the, the, the light that John witnessed to is going to be born, is going to step into this world, the word made flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. That's right, it's time for Christmas in July. We're, I found, this was a, a yarn store's website. Uh, the internet is, you know, the internet. Um, we're going to look at three people or groups of people this morning. We're going to look at Joseph. Um, Jesus' father. We're going to look at the shepherds and we're going to look at the wise men and see what God has to teach us about being faithful to his word. First of all, Joseph and the census. We're going to basically be looking at Matthew 1 and 2 and Luke chapter 2 this morning. So Matthew 1 says, this is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about that last week. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. So here we have in this part of our story, Joseph and Mary are engaged. Now we need to understand what a first century engagement looked like in Judah, because it's not the same as today. When we get engaged today, it's basically that kind of waiting period between when you've popped the question... And now you're just kind of picking out cake toppers until the actual wedding starts, right? And the mar- real marriage begins. But, but in J- Mary and Joseph's time, the marriages were actually, this, this engagement period was much different and much stronger. They lived in a time where there were prearranged marriages by their parents. And my parents are going, maybe we should try that. Um, <laughs> can never leave those ones alone. Um, so, so they, 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 after they've chosen uh, who you're going to get married to, there was basically this year-long waiting period, this betrothal period, where you were already seen as married. You were actually called husband and wife. You weren't sleeping together or living together, but you were as good as married. So if you were going to break off a marriage in this period of time, it would require a legal certificate of divorce. It was this big deal. Now, it's easy to hate on Joseph here, isn't it? right? You jerk. You typical guy, right? You hear that she's pregnant and you run for the hills, leaving the bun in the proverbial oven. Classic baby daddy move, right? 
He just splits when he hears that she's pregnant. But put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a second. His fiance has come to him with a belly bump, claiming that this was from the Holy Spirit. All right, I mean, you've heard some wild tales, some dog ate my homework excuses, but this one is new, right? And, 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 and we have to understand here that this was actually an act of kindness from Joseph to Mary. Look at what he says. He was, he was going to break this engagement off. Why? Because he was a righteous man and he did not want to publicly disgrace her. In the New Testament time, if a woman was pregnant before a marriage, she would become publicly shamed and shunned. That she would, she would be left to never be married again, which was as bad of a disgraceful thing as could happen to someone in their time. And potentially, according to the law, it gave space that she could have been stoned to death. So this was not an act of cruelty on Joseph's part. This was an act of love. And as Joseph is tossing and turning in what I'm sure is another near sleepless night, deciding what to do with this Mary and, and, and this pregnancy... Guess who's back? Back again. He considered this. An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David. This is probably Gabriel. Same one who showed up to Mary and to Elizabeth. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. The angel of the Lord comes to Joseph and he says, no, no, this is legit. The story that she's saying, this child is from God, not from man. And we talked about last week why that's so important. If Jesus is going to be perfect, the perfect sacrifice, he can't be from Joseph. He has to be from God. And then he says, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus meant the Lord saves. The Savior, the the coming one, is here. And, and, And Joseph, like any good Hebrew boy, would know his history, and he knows that this child is the long awaited, prophesied deliverer of the people of Israel, and he is going to be this stepdad. It would blow his mind. Blow his mind. And then Matthew, he quotes what Isaiah had said 700 years earlier. All this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin, who has never been with another man, will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. This echoes what we see in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. The Word was Jesus. And the Word was with God since the beginning. And He was God. Jesus is God. And then the Word became flesh and dwelt among them. God, with skin on, now lives in this world. And so when Joseph wakes up, he makes this choice to believe God's Word that was spoken through the angel. And he gets married uh-huh. See what I did there? Apparently it didn't. That's all right. It'll come to you. Um, they do not sleep together, which indicates it came from the Holy Spirit, not from him. And you'd think it's all downhill from here, right? The baby is going to be born in Nazareth. Uh, they're going to have this nice and quiet um, delivery. But no. No, what happens next? Luke chapter 2. At that time, the Roman Empire, Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. Remember at this time that the, the Romans are in control. They're, they're, they're ruling the known world. 
Okay, and the Caesar is the emperor, the ultimate ruler of this vast empire. You see here, all of the green was um, the, the known Roman Empire at this time. And what they did at this time is they took this census. Now, that means counting heads. Why do you want to take a head count? There's usually two main reasons. If you're going to maintain an empire, what do you need? You need money and you need muscle. And so this, this head count would provide them uh, the accurate amount of people to be able to see how many people they can tax and how many people they can draft for their army. And so, so Caesar, he says, I want to count everybody so we can get money and muscle. And what they had to do at this time to take the census, everybody had to go to their hometown of their father's ancestors, which in this case, for Joseph, he was in the line of David. Where was David's hometown? It was in Bethlehem. And so, da- and so they had to travel to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. The word Bethlehem, it's really cool. It means the house of bread which, you know, modern translation would probably have to be the house of gluten-free bread, um, that here he's going to come, how appropriate from the house of bread will come the bread of life, whose body will be broken to feed a hungry, dying, starving world. But Joseph, I'm imagining, he was not super jazzed about this situation. You see, his wife is almost due. And as in Carpenter, I'm sure he had all his ducks in a row, right? He's got a crib that he's fashioned out of wood, made him, handcrafted himself. He's got a rocker for Mary and the baby, made from cedar. They, they've got the midwife lined up. They, they, they've got everything all set to go, safe, clean, quiet. Parents will be there from both sides. And now they're being asked, when she is at the most pregnant part of the, of the process, to make a 70-mile trip, maybe even 80, down to Bethlehem. Now, this is the first century. They don't call an Uber, right? You're not getting a taxi cab to go down to Nazareth. They are walking on foot, or at best, putting her on a donkey, okay? Never, never, never shake a baby. And when they show up, all of the available rooms are taken. And they have to go in, oftentimes we read it as a stable, but most likely it was out back in a cave where the animals eat and sleep. How's that for your first family vacation? And again, you put yourself in Joseph's shoes for a minute here. I mean, this guy can't keep a, catch a break, right? I was thinking of... Uh, uh, the um, Lloyd Christmas on Dumb and Dumber, remember? He says, we got no food, we got no money, our pets' heads are falling off, right? And here's Joseph going, man, what in the world? I got a wife, out of, she's pregnant out of wedlock, I have to go to Bethlehem, and there's no room in the inn, we have to sleep with the pets, right? Like, at what point here will this man break? And Joseph, he's not getting the why questions answered, is he? And so often in our lives, God doesn't step in and answer the whys. Lord, why are you letting this happen to me? Why, why, why have you not taken away this hurt in my loved one's life? Why are you allowing us to go, go through this painful process? And when some loss, some pain, some trial comes along in our lives, God typically does not sit us down with a PowerPoint and say, let me show you the future. Here's my five to ten year plan for your life. You see, faith by definition is evidence of what we cannot see. 
And Joseph, he saw things from his human plane. And he had to humbly believe that God knew what he was doing and trust him. And here's the result of Joseph's faith. And while they were there, the time came, the long-awaited, prophesied, preordained since the dawn of creation time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. And one of the most beautiful, famous scenes in human history is the result. Jesus is born, and he's going to change everyone's lives. And you know what? What seemed like chaos from Joseph's point of view, from Mary being pregnant to have to go to Bethlehem at the most inopportune time, to not be able to find any OSHA-approved housing, and to have to step in and believe that this was part of God's plan all along. In fact, you know what he said clear back in Micah? through the prophet Micah, he said, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, some podunk town, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past, really he's saying from eternity past, God will come from you on my behalf. God had predicted that this baby would be born in Nowhereville, Israel, and he had moved heaven and earth. This, this decree from this Roman emperor was not a mistake. He was using all of these things as a divine ingredients to do exactly what he said he was going to do since day one. Just like at the beginning of creation, when, when Genesis says that God, he, the, spirit of the, of, the Spirit of God hovered over the darkness, and, and the earth was formless and void. The word there is chaos. And out of chaos... God brings ordered creation into being. And he takes what appears to be nothing but chaos in Joseph's life, in Mary's life, and he introduces them to the one that brings order out of all of our chaos. And he does the same thing in my life, and he does the same thing in yours. God keeps his word. And in the darkest night of our life, when that promise seems absurd, when it seems impossible to hang on to, we remember a story like Joseph's. That God himself, he steps into our world with skin on, steps into Joseph and Mary's situation, their chaos, and out of what seemed like marital scandal comes love's pure light. And what comes out of Roman oppression comes the rescuer offering freedom. The prince offering peace. And what comes out of the lowliest of delivery rooms comes the deliverer. He's the high king of heaven, and yet he comes to be the lowliest servant of all. God has never left or abandoned Joseph, and he will never leave or abandon us. He has a plan, and he's faithful to finish what he started. And just like with Joseph, that plan centers on the word that became flesh. So we look at Joseph. The next thing we want to see is the shepherds. 
And you look in Luke 4, 2, and if you come to church often, even if you just come on Christmas, the story will be familiar to you. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but as always, every time the angel shows up. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news. This is the word for gospel that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, bookmark that, we'll come back to Messiah. The Lord has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You'll find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. This, this beautiful sight. But you know, there's this question that's always bugged me here. Why in the world did God choose to first announce the birth of Jesus to shepherds? Do you ever wonder that? Why, why them? Why the shepherds? And if I'm up in heaven's strategy room, okay, I'm in our, this, this divine think tank, I'm huddling up with the angels, and we're talking, and I'm going, okay, how are we going to strategically spread this news? I'm thinking, let's go to the Jewish leaders, right? And they'll be each in their own little synagogues, and we'll kind of, you know, little triangle pyramid scheme thing here. We'll just kind of let it leak out through that, or maybe we'll tell Herod, and then Herod, he'll tweet out, and he's got like three million followers, so that'll, that'll preach, that'll send quickly, Right? If we're going to spread the news, we're going to choose the most prominent, most influential people to tell first. So why in the peace on earth did God send the angels to the shepherds? There's a couple of reasons, I I think. And some of this is, is obviously just conjecture, but indulge me. I think there's some beautiful imagery here. These Bethlehem shepherds, um, you see, at the time when they would celebrate the Passover... People would come from all over Judah to celebrate it in Jerusalem. Uh, and so what this meant is when they would celebrate the Passover, which of course was this, this story from Egypt when they had sacrificed this lamb to cover their doorposts so that God would spare them judgment. These Bethlehem shepherds, it would have been their sheep that would have been used for this Passover celebration. And of course, what did the Passover celebration point to? Jesus as the sacrificial lamb. So here, these guys would get this. They would get this imagery, and it's their sheep that are being used. But not just as a sheep. What imagery did Jesus use for himself? He said, I'm the good shepherd who's come to lay his life down for the sheep. Jesus isn't just the sheep. He's also the shepherd. And he said, I will leave 99 to find the one lost sheep that I love. And again, these shepherds, they would understand that imagery. They've, they've, they've went after the lost sheep, literally. And finally, I think, man, God made all of his great promises to who? The first man of Israel was Abraham. What was his occupation? He was a shepherd. And he comes to Moses. I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to deliver my people. Before Moses led them into the wilderness, he was a shepherd. And then he comes to David. He says, it's going to be through your throne that this king is going to come and rule and reign forever. And before he was a king, David was a shepherd. And Jesus decides to first announce himself to these shepherds. But deeper than that, and here's what I think. The shepherds were pretty much on the the bottom of the social food chain. 
They were typically seen as unclean. The work that they did with the sheep made them ceremonially unclean. They would go for weeks without being able to go to the temple to worship and to sacrifice. So they were usually seen as dirty. They, they were also seen as, as these um, almost universally recognized as thieves. They were the shadiest of the shady, like a, like a drug dealer. Not only that, they were uneducated. And they were lowly. They were despised. You could say rejected by society. These are outcasts. And yet they get a front row seat to the angelic musical and the first backstage pass to see Jesus. Why? I think Jesus is, is, God's communicating here early on exactly who it is that Jesus came for in the first place. The sinner, the lonely, the loser, the thief. And in coming to the shepherds, God is sending each of us a message. I don't care who you are in this room or on this planet. He says there is no one too low, no one too sinful, no one too unimportant, no one too powerless, no one too insignificant to be loved, to be sought like that one sheep and to be found and to be lovingly brought back home. In fact, that's the only kind of person Jesus could come to save in the first place. Those who admitted that they needed it. When, when Jesus becomes an adult, he says these words in Mark 2. Jesus told them, healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. I had someone earlier this week come to me and say, man, hypocritical for me to come to church this Sunday. You don't know the half the things I've done. You don't, you don't know my situation. How can I dare enter the church building? And I said, listen, if only good people are able to come through that door, if only people with good marriages and good children and good lives are able to come into this building, then I'm going to be preaching to folding chairs. In fact, I shouldn't be able to even come in here. This place should be a hospital ward. This, this place should be an emergency room where people are coming in because they need Jesus. We don't come in here and clean up our act and then expect him to accept us. That's not the gospel. The gospel is we come as we are and he cleans me. The gospel is that I come to him and he forgives me. He restores me. He gives me new life. And my words should echo that of Timothy, or Paul to Timothy. He said, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save not the clean, not the religious, not the ones who pretend like they have their act together, but he came to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. Here's a man who had been persecuting Christians before he was saved. If anybody has a, a, a past and a history, it's Paul. But I think what God is doing here through announcing things, this to the angels, or the shepherds first. He is setting a precedent for this upside-down kingdom that he's going to introduce. James chapter 2, it talks about this. Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who will inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Jesus is going to preach this upside-down kingdom where he says, the last shall be first. The meek shall inherit the earth. I'm going to use the weak to shame the strong. I will exalt the humble, and those who think they're all that, I will bring them low. 
And Jesus lived this out before us. He was born to two broke peasants in an animal trough. And his first guests are these shady, marginalized shepherds. And I wonder if he'd have come to a king or to one of the Pharisees, how would they have responded? We don't know. But what we do know is how the shepherds responded. What it says in verse 15, when the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. These shepherds were humbled and honored and amazed that God would choose them to be the first audience of Jesus. And so what do they do? They enact the the, the reality of the shadow of our nativity scene. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in a manger. And what happens when a humbled sinner gets a glimpse of their Savior? They tell everyone they know. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. When you get good news, you find out you're having a baby you're the highest bidder on that house you were trying to get. And you get this great news, you don't bottle it up, you tell everyone you know this good news. When they see the best news that it's ever been given, no one can tame their tongues, and they go and tell everyone that they know that Jesus has come. And what happens when these uneducated, sinful, marginalized shepherds tell everyone about what they've seen? All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. God uses these shepherds as the first missionaries of the world. And they astonish the world with the news of who Jesus is. You see, God keeps his word. God keeps his word. When the angels were singing to the shepherds, this is what they sang, the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now this word Messiah, the Hebrew word was Messiah, often translated anointed one. This, this was the one in Greek, they used that same word Messiah, it's Christos or, or Christ, Jesus Christ, the anointed one. This was the word they used in the Old Testament to point toward the coming deliverer. This promise that had been passed down through thousands of years from prophets and kings and shepherds. He's come, and he's come for the sinful, for the rejected, for the rebel for the lonely, for the despised, and the marginalized. Just like God said he would. Finally, the wise men. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, the story of the wise men, they're on the exact other end of the spectrum of the shepherds, okay? This word in Greek is magi, if you've heard that one used before. These guys were um, well-educated. In fact, they knew a lot of astronomy in particular. It's how they would have been able to use the star to to navigate. They were highly regarded in their society, um, probably pretty wealthy, And what's amazing here is we're going to see guys on the other end of the social spectrum. What happens to them when they encounter Jesus? Look at verse 11 of Luke 2. They entered the house, saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. You see, this is showing us Jesus didn't just come for financially poor people, okay? 
He didn't just come for people in a certain tax bracket. This was about being poor in spirit, to humbly acknowledge that you can do nothing to come into God's presence and that you need this Savior. And the shepherds and the wise men alike bowed down before the Savior of the world. But then we have King Herod. And you know the story with Herod. You remember, he is the puppet king. Okay, you got Caesar who's overseeing the whole Roman Empire. Then in each province, they have these, these kings over the province. So Herod is the, is the king of, of Judea. And so for Herod, for, he hears these foreigners, these wise men are coming to worship this newborn king, this Jewish king. He would see this as potentially a direct threat to his crown. He says, I'm the king. No one else can be king. That position is filled. But as they come to him and say, and you've got to imagine that they were prepared for and even paranoid about a Jewish uprising to say enough is enough and to try to fight against this Roman oppression. So Herod finds out from the Jewish leaders, he comes to them and says, man, where is this baby supposed to be born? And they tell him through the prophecies that he was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So he sends the wise men to Bethlehem and he says, go there, find out where the baby Jesus is, then tell me because I want to worship him too. He didn't want to worship him. But God is in all of this. And he tells the wise men, before they come back, don't go back to Herod. Go a different way. And then, in fact, he actually warns uh, Joseph. He says, you need to flee. Get out of here because Herod is coming after your boy. And so Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they flee to Egypt. Herod loses his mind. And he puts out a decree to kill every child under the age of two. I cannot imagine the horror of this kind of bloodshed, beyond imagination, these innocent babies. But God's in control, and he hides this family in Egypt until Herod dies, before he brings them back into the land, and they come and they settle into Nazareth, Joseph's hometown. But you know what? None of this, none of this, what seemed like chaos to Joseph and Mary, or here we are again, Joseph's going, I went through all that the first time Jesus is born, and now i got to hide out as a refugee for the first years of Jesus' life? But all of this was part of God's plan that he had known before the beginning of time. And you look, and in Matthew chapter 2, it tells us these things were prophesied. He had prophesied through Hosea that Jesus would flee to Egypt. That's why he says, this fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I call my son out of Egypt. He knew he had to go down to Egypt, then he'd have to call him back out of Egypt. He knew, and this is a difficult one for us to have to wrestle with theologically, but it says he prophesied through Isaiah, or Jeremiah, excuse me, the killing of these babies. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. And I don't know how to deal with that, with God's sovereignty and allowing things like that to happen. But he is God, and he's good. Finally, he prophesied that through the prophets um, that, that, that this child would survive this bloodshed and would be raised in Nazareth. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said, he will be called a Nazarene. And we find throughout this story that God keeps his word. And despite Satan's best attempts, despite man's best attempts, despite Herod's best attempts, God protects and he preserves his word and he preserves and protects the word. And unlike my parents, 
who could not deliver on that Sonics game, right? Not bitter about it at all. If God says it, his word tells us, his story tells us we can bank on it. And when he promised Adam and Eve back in the garden that this deliverer was going to come and crush the head of Satan and sin and death, they could trust him. And when he promised Abraham, there's going to be a man coming from your nation that's going to bless all nations, Abraham could bank on that. And when he told David, there's going to be a king coming from your line that's going to come and rule and reign with peace and justice, that David could trust him. And when he told the people of Israel, I'm sending a deliverer who will give you a new heart and a new life and a new hope that they could bank on. And now every single one of those promises has been fulfilled in this baby in an animal trough in a cave. Jesus is here. And we can look at this story and we have to ask ourselves this question. This story tells us God always keeps his word, but will we believe it? Man, when we're on a Joseph-like journey to Bethlehem, or fleeing into Egypt. Life seems like chaos. Nothing is going as how we would have scripted it. There's pain. There's a heartache. There's sin. There's a rift in a relationship. Trials from inside and out. Will we, like Joseph, believe that God keeps his word? The answer is no. We will not always. That's why Jesus came, to forgive us of our own unbelief. And even when we're feeling like one of those shepherds, too sinful, too low, too marginalized, God would never love me, pursue me. The good news doesn't apply to me. You don't understand how much I've done. Do we believe his word? And even when Herod-like genocide is ravaging your life and the world around you, will we believe that God keeps his word? And like I said, we won't always believe, but there's grace for that too. There's grace for that too. We trust the promise keeper. We don't make these promises to God. We trust that he'll keep his. Let's pray. Father, my heart is prone to wander. I feel it. And I'm prone to not trust you, even though you've proven yourself time and time again. When I get into situations like Joseph's where I don't have the why questions answered, and Lord, when when things around me are chaos and, and I don't seem to have control, Father, it's easy to doubt you. And Father, I pray for the grace to trust you more. That we would believe that that we don't trust you. And that's why Jesus had to come in the first place. He lived a sinless life for us. He perfectly walked by faith in a relationship with you on this earth because we couldn't. And now he has made a way for us to come back to you. We don't come to this church. We don't come into your presence cleaned up. That is not the gospel. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room this morning that's come in here dirty and broken, praise you that they've come and they would find the Savior, the water to quench their souls, the hunger to feed. Father, that we would fall on Jesus and find him as our all in all, that you have kept every single one of your promises to deliver us, to restore us, to give us new life in the person of Jesus. May we have hope that that baby came into a manger grew up to be a man, died on the cross in our place, and rose again to give us new life. May we believe this morning that our Savior loves, our Savior lives, and he always keeps his words. In his name, the word's name that we pray. Amen.